And good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. When you find that, just kind of look up here for a moment. Uh, Most of you know that uh, 12 years ago I suffered a heart attack. And uh, I was telling our Wednesday night study a couple weeks ago, I was very blessed by God for the simple reason that many people never survive their first heart attack. It's their last heart attack as well. The problem is too many people with heart disease really don't know they have it. I mean, heart disease is a silent killer. And there's often no warning signs and therefore no reason to see a doctor until the attack happens, like in my case. You know, it's the symptoms, right, of a disease that lets you know there's a problem, which then causes you to seek out a doctor. But if you don't have any symptoms, you can have something like advanced heart disease and be completely unaware of it until it takes your life. It's not that people wouldn't seek out medical attention if they knew they had a problem. Again, the problem is they just don't know there is a problem until it's too late. Now, you know, there's another disease that has infected the human race. It's called sin. It's also deadly, only it doesn't just kill the body. It kills the soul forever. The whole human race has been infected by it, and it's 100% eternally fatal. But there is a cure. There is a cure. The problem is, most people today don't realize that they have this disease. In fact, um, we're living at a time in our society where people are actually telling us now that there is no such thing as sin. I mean, sin is that archaic concept that people, you know, in the old days talked about, all right? I mean, we're much more enlightened and advanced, progressive, beyond all that today. I mean, you know, it's just that we have different truths. Your truth is not my truth, and my truth is not your truth. And we all have different ways of living our lives. And who's to say that your way is wrong and my way is right or vice versa? There's no ultimate truth. You just do whatever you feel it's right for you to do. And that's the concept today. And so because of it, even though people have this disease, this terminal disease called sin, and even if there are some warning signs, you know, some people do have warning signs with regard to heart disease. How many people have said, I just thought it was indigestion or uh, pulled muscle in my arm? And sometimes they ignore the warning signs until the heart attack comes and it does end their life. You know, God is trying to warn people today with regard to their sin. Society is saying, for the most part, no such thing. I mean, try telling that to a heart patient who's just had a heart attack. It's all in your head. There is no such thing as heart disease. Okay? But that's kind of what people are doing with regard to sin today. A much more terrible and terminal disease, because it doesn't just kill the body. In time, it kills the soul for eternity. And God is trying to get people's attention. What's he doing? What's, he's, he's, he's trying to allow the symptoms of a person's life to show them, look, uh, you are in a very desperate situation here. If you were to die, you would spend eternity in hell. And I'm allowing the symptoms of your life, the fact that you've, you've turned your back on me, we'll say. That, you know, and people do this all the time. They're, they're always, you know, looking for... Um, some, some different thing. They're, they're not really coming to God's word. They're going everywhere else to look for the answers to their problems, right? But God is saying, look at your life. Oftentimes he points to the addictions, the drug abuse, the, the uh, alcoholism, uh, the pornography, the gambling. 
He tries to show us through the way our families are uh, dissolving. Marriages are crumbling. So many things that God is trying to point our attention to to say, this is the problem in your life because you have not come to me. You've not given your life to me. Other people who realize they have a problem turn to the wrong cure. It's not religion. It's not self-help programs that a person needs. It's Jesus Christ, right? He is the only answer to man's problem. The problem of sin. Now, with all that in mind, as we come to Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13, Jesus presents himself then as the great physician whose whole purpose for coming to this earth was to heal the human race from the greatest epidemic in human history, and that is the disease of sin. Now, this story opens up, this passage, where Jesus comes to one individual. His name is Matthew. Uh, In verse 9, we see the invitation. All right, the invitation. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, as we said last week, at this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been up in the Galilee uh, ministering in and around the city of Capernaum. He did most of his ministry up in the Galilee region. But as we've already pointed out, Capernaum was on the main trade route from Damascus to Egypt. And as such, it was a very prosperous city. In fact, uh, historians tell us it was the economic engine for that whole region. A lot of commerce passed through that town. And so Jesus walks up and sees, uh, saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office or the tax booth. At the time of Jesus' birth, Israel had been under Roman rule for about 60 years. And one of the worst things about Roman occupation was their oppressive system of taxation. Uh, William Barclay, historian and author, reports the existence of three main statutory taxes there that the Romans imposed on people. First of all, the ground tax, which was one-tenth of the grain and one-fifth of the fruit that your land produced. Second was an income tax of 1% of a person's income. You say, well, that's not too bad. Except they had other taxes. The third main one was something called a poll tax imposed on all males from 14 to 65 and on every female 12 to 65. The poll tax was also called the head tax. Why the head tax? Because it was a tax, if you can believe that, that gave you the right to exist. They counted every head. Said, okay, you're alive. You're alive. Then just for the, for the privilege of living, we're going to tax you. Now, you know, if our government does that, we're in big trouble. Okay? And I see it coming somewhere. I mean, you know. But that wasn't all, okay, they, they had. Uh, in addition, Barclay said, the tax collectors grew rich by overcharging in many other taxes. A duty tax of 2.5% to 12.5% was levied on all imported and exported goods. There were, there were taxes for using main roads, for crossing bridges, and for entering towns that you wanted to do commerce in, and for using the harbors, okay? They taxed pack animals. They even tax the number of wheels on your cart, all right, that you use to get your merchandise in and out of town. As Barclay said, Capernaum was a town where major roads came together. Therefore, Matthew was at the, the junction to levy taxes on goods that passed by. 
End quote. Say, so, well, how did Matthew, a Jew, get this job? How did he get this job working for the Roman government? Well, Rome would sell at public auction the right to collect taxes in a given country, province, or region at a fixed rate for a period of five years. So the Roman government said, look, for this region or this city, we want X amount of dollars per year. Anything you could collect above that, you could keep as a tax collector. And those who held such taxing rights were called publicani, Latin, publicani, which is why the King James just translates it publican, okay, publican. Now you can imagine if this was the system back then, where Rome said, okay, for this region we want to collect X amount of taxes a year. Anything you can collect above and beyond that you can keep as your salary. Well, think of what that did, all right? And that led to a lot of excessive taxation and even extortion. I mean, tax collectors back then were notorious extortioners, notorious extortioners. But you know what? The average citizen had really little or no recourse because these tax collectors were actually independent contractors working directly for the Roman government. So Rome really had no real uh, motivation to rein in on these guys since they were collecting Rome's taxes. So they collected a little extra above and beyond, uh, but no big deal. And so consequently, these publicani were hated by the people, especially, listen, if they were members of the community like Matthew, okay, a Jew working for Rome, collecting taxes from his fellow Jews. Matthew was doubly hated, you can imagine that, as an extortioner and traitor. He would have been considered a, an unclean individual, like, uh, like a pig. And they put these guys in a lower class, if you can believe that, than the prostitutes, murderers, and robbers. And yet here comes Jesus, walking by the tax booth, sees Matthew and said to him, follow me. Now, we don't know much about Matthew's life before Jesus invited him to become one of his disciples. It's doubtful he was a religious man because uh, noted Jewish scholar Alfred Ertersheim reports that a Jewish publicani was barred from the synagogue and was forbidden to have any religious or social contact with his fellow Jews. And yet even though Matthew was a hated outcast among his own people, Jesus still sought him out and invited him to become one of his disciples. And so Jesus said, follow me. And Matthew, it says, arose and followed him. You say, just like that? No, not just like that. Salvation is very seldom just like that. Obviously, God had been working in Matthew's heart for a very long time. You have to understand something, that Matthew no doubt made a very good living. I mean, these uh, tax collector jobs were very sought after. If you had the resources to purchase the job, you were set for life. Because of all the graft, because of all the uh, opportunity for extortion, these guys were often very wealthy. Matthew was obviously a very wealthy man. He, uh, being a wealthy man, he probably had um, uh, purchased for himself everything that uh, money could buy. He probably had a very nice home, probably had a designer chariot, whatever else they had back then. I mean, you know, he had everything money could buy, and yet he was no doubt empty inside. And I don't think this was the first time he ever heard about Jesus, obviously. He knew that who Jesus was. He had heard, the, especially all the people coming through Capernaum uh, and Jesus doing so many miracles and so much preaching in that area, they were probably always coming by Matthew saying, did you hear what that prophet from Nazareth did now? Just kind of talking about Jesus and Matthew came to know. Maybe Matthew even uh, went to one of Jesus' meetings where Jesus was teaching. 
Anyways, God had been working in Matthew's heart. He was empty inside. The money wasn't doing it. All the earthly rewards and comforts and success left him empty. And so when Jesus said to him, Matthew, I want you to leave all this and come and follow me. Matthew did not hesitate. And I want you to know something. Once you purchased this job from Rome, it was yours uh, as long as you wanted it. If you gave it up, there was always somebody standing behind you waiting to take it. So if you gave up this job, you gave it up for life, basically. Matthew gave it up knowing he could never return back to it if things didn't, you know, work out following Jesus. In other words, fully committed, totally committed to Jesus Christ when he decided to come and follow the Lord. Matthew counted the cost and chose to leave earthly riches to follow Jesus, a decision I'm sure, folks, he does not regret today. That's something we have to think about. So we see the invitation in verse 9. Next in verse 10 we see the celebration. It says, Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Now Luke tells us in Luke 5.29, Then Levi, Levi is another name for Matthew, that Levi gave Jesus a great feast. He threw a party, celebration, in his own house, Matthew's own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and other sinners who sat with Jesus. Look, we can understand where Matthew's coming from. Like many new converts, many of us, no doubt. Matthew's first thought was to tell his friends about his new life of following Jesus. Didn't you feel that way when you got saved? You wanted to tell all your friends how awesome it was that you found Jesus. Now, they didn't always think it was so awesome. And now you are talking to them about Jesus all the time. But Matthew just wanted to share. In fact, Matthew was so excited that he threw a banquet to celebrate what had happened in his life and to present Jesus to his friends, all of whom were no doubt tax collectors and assorted sinners, Okay, which meant they were all social and religious outcasts. Of course, this presented a target-rich environment for the critical eyes of the Pharisees who were also present in Matthew's home that day. And that leads us to number three, the condemnation in verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to Jesus' disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why was this such a problem for them? Well, you have to understand the mindset back then. They believed that when you ate with somebody, you were becoming one with them. So therefore, you would never eat with your enemies, ever. You don't want to become one with your enemies. Why did they think this? Well, the idea was that, okay, you're on a table and you got a big loaf of bread, you know, those big round loaves of bread, and they would pass it around, people would rip off uh, hunks of the bread, and on the table there would be dishes with various sauces and things. And you would break off a piece of the bread and dip it in various sauces on the table and eat the bread. And as you were all eating off the same loaf, they believed you were all becoming one with each other. Okay? All becoming one with each other. In fact, one author said, this was an attack on... Jesus' morals. For the obvious implication was that he was associated with low types. He must be like them. If he was hanging out with them, he must be like them. He was with sinners because he liked and wished to share in their sin. So they were condemning the Lord himself. They were condemning the Lord himself. And I'm sure the Pharisees that day were only observing they were not eating. There's no way they would ever think of eating with people such as these. All they were interested in was finding something they could condemn Jesus for 
And at Matthew's celebration, they found the perfect justification for their condemnation of Jesus and his disciples. And so we see the invitation. Next, we see the celebration. Thirdly, the condemnation. And this brings us to the fourth and the primary one in this story, the proclamation. In verses 12 and 13, we read, when Jesus heard that, why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? They didn't say it to Jesus directly, but he knew what they were saying. When Jesus heard that, he said to these Pharisees, to them, these Pharisees, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And here's the proclamation. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And listen, the analogy that Jesus uses is very simple. He is saying, just as a physician isn't needed among the well, and so spends his or her time among the sick, so too the Savior is needed among those who think they're spiritually well, and therefore goes to those who recognize their sinners and in need of a Savior. Look, don't let the last part of verse 13 throw you. When Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, you might get the idea that he was saying to the Pharisees, look, you guys are righteous. You don't need me. You know, so I'm going to hang out with the sinners because you guys, you're you're right with God. There are none righteous, not one, Paul says in Romans three. They're not even one. OK, what is Jesus saying? He was let me paraphrase. He was saying, look, I didn't come to call those who don't think they're sick. You Pharisees, you don't think you're sinners. You think you're right with God. You think you're righteous. Therefore, you don't see your need for me. You don't think you need a Savior. Because only sinners think they need a Savior. Just like only sick people seek out a doctor. Why? Because they know they're sick. The Pharisees were as sick and as sinful as anybody. The problem is, they didn't see it. And therefore, they were not seeking out Jesus as the great physician to heal them of this tremendous disease that they had. This disease of sin. Look, Jesus Christ can only save sinners. People who know that they're sinners and worthy of hell. He cannot save people who think that they're basically good and therefore deserving of heaven. And that's why John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter, Paul, and no doubt all the other disciples started their public ministries where they were preaching the gospel with the word what? Repent. Every one of them as they began to preach the gospel, started with the word repent. Repentance involved the recognition and the confession of sin, listen, which is essential before a person will come to Jesus to save them from their sin. Look, again, no one will see their need for the Savior who doesn't first see themselves as a sinner. That's why Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Paul said, of whom I am chief. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That doesn't mean that there are some in the world who are not sinners. It just means that he only can save those who recognize that they're sinners. Look, repentance from sin is the first step before a person can believe the gospel for salvation. Again, the word gospel simply means good news. The word gospel simply means good news. But as we have said many times in the past, all right, before you can announce to somebody 
the good news of the gospel, you first have to give them the bad news. There is bad news, isn't there? The bad news is that people are sinners. And as such, the wrath of God abides on them. John 3.36 The wrath of God, in other words, they are headed for everlasting judgment. And there's nothing they can do, by the way, to change that condition. They can't pull themselves up by their spiritual bootstraps because they're going to work hard and go to church and light candles and, and perform rituals and so on and so forth. Religion will not save a person. That is not the cure. We talked about the human race being infected with this disease called sin. And the only cure is not religion. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And yet the devil pushes people down the path of religion. Think, making them think that that's how they're going to get to God. That's how they're going to reach heaven. He deceives them. And so before we can announce to people the good news, we have to first give them the bad news. That they're sinners. The wrath of God abides on them. Right? I mean, today, there are many churches who don't even acknowledge there's bad news. Okay? They only give people the good stuff. And in many churches, it sounds like this. Hey, come to Jesus. God will give you Cadillacs. He'll give you mansions. He'll prosper your business. He'll keep you healthy. He will do all these wonderful things for you. That's not the gospel. All right? The gospel, first of all, starts with the word repentance. Repent, which means you have to turn from your what? Sin. Your rebellion. What is sin? You know, sin is one of those words today that people hear that. The unbelievers hear you talk about sin. They roll their eyes. You know, haven't we gotten past this sin? You know, you're still talking about sin, you Bible thumpers. You know, we're past that. No, God doesn't feel that way. You know, the word sin comes from a Greek word that literally means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. It was an archery term for hitting the bullseye or the target. Of course, the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned. All have missed the mark. Of course, the next question is, well, what does the mark or the bullseye represent? Well, in Romans 3.23, Paul tells us it represents the glory of God. He said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You say, what's the glory of God? You ready? Perfection. Perfection. Yes, but you say perfection with regard to what? Well, as you read the New Testament, you realize that when God talks about missing his glory, okay, all have missed the glory of God. He is talking about how all have failed to live up perfectly to his law. All have failed to live perfectly according to his law. In the Old Testament, we know that when God gave the law to Moses, it contained 613 commandments. Don't get nervous. We're not going to get into all those, okay? <laughs> but to break any one of them meant you had missed the mark and were now guilty of sin. But instead of focusing on 613, let's just focus on or limit ourselves to the 10 we are most familiar with. The 10 commandments, right? Not the 10 suggestions, but the 10 commandments. These commandments are kind of like the wooden boards, I guess, that make up the hull of a ship. If any one of them is missing or broken, well, I'll tell you what, that ship is going under. And the same is true for a person who chooses to live or to get into heaven by the law. It doesn't matter if they've kept most of this, most of it. 
If any commandment is broken, even once that person is sunk, they're condemned. Okay? Oh, where does it say that? How about James 2, verses 10 and 11? Now, let's just read verse 10 to you. For whoever, James said, shall keep the whole law. Okay? Say, and this is impossible. James is just making a, a, a point based on hyperbole. He's saying, look, if anyone was able to keep the entire law their whole life and yet breaks one commandment, they are guilty of breaking them all. Because the law is intact. You either keep it or you break it. Yes, but I've only broken one my whole life. doesn't matter. Okay? Look, there are people who are going to do better at keeping God's law, the Ten Commandments, than others, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul said. You know, when we were in um, Arizona last year visiting our son, as I already told you the story, we went and visited the Grand Canyon. It's a four-hour ride. You know, I thought to myself, this better be pretty spectacular for me to drive four hours to see anything. I mean, if I'm going to drive four hours to see a hole in the ground, it better be a pretty spectacular hole, right? And it was. And they take you on buses to each of the rims, and you're overlooking the Grand Camp, different things. I think I could be wrong, but I think at one point it's like 26 miles across. It might be more, but let's just say 26 miles, right? Now, let's just say here you are on one side. You're a sinner like me. We're on the one side, and heaven is 26 miles on the other side. And to get to heaven, uh, to get to the other side, you have to jump the entire 26 miles. Well, let's face it, folks. I mean, you know, there are some people who are very athletic. In fact, maybe they're an Olympic long jumper. And they take a run and start, and man, they jump, and they get way out, 30 feet. And then they go down. Somebody like me, I'm not getting very far. (laughs) You know, three or four feet maybe, and then I'm done, you know. That's kind of how it is in life. Some people are better at keeping God's laws than others, but all of us fall far short, right, of sinless perfection. And that's why Paul calls the law a curse. It's because it makes salvation dependent upon a person keeping all of it without fail to get into heaven. In other words, the law demands moral perfection from a person that seeks to live by that law to get into heaven. Moral perfection. And yet, now this is what the Bible teaches. And yet when you go out into the streets like we do witnessing, and you ask people, look, if you were to die tonight, would God let you into heaven? They almost will always say to you, if you ask them that question, yes. They've done that to me, yes. Okay, well, why would you say that? Um, And they respond, well, because I'm a good person. I know I'm not perfect, morally speaking, but I still think I'm good enough to get into heaven when I die. That's the general idea or the general mentality that many people have today. I'm not perfect, but I think I'm good enough. Well, folks, listen to what God's Word is saying. If you're not morally perfect, you're not good enough to get into heaven. It's all or nothing. There is no good enough or I'm better than most. It's either moral perfection or eternal rejection. In hell. Now, I realize that that causes a lot of people to become very upset. But listen again to what God's Word says. Romans 3.23, Paul said, For all have sinned, all have missed the mark, and fall short of the glory of God, sinless perfection. In Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. Now, when you tell people that, who 
have never really read the Bible. They get very upset and say, look, nobody could live a perfect life. You're crazy. What are you talking about? Nobody could live a perfect life. Well, that's not entirely true. One man did. His name is Jesus. The Bible says if we put our faith in him, he will put his righteousness to our account and we will get into heaven because of what he did and because of how he lived. You see, folks, all of this has been the bad news, right? Up until this point. That to get into heaven, we have to be perfect. None of us are perfect. Therefore, none of us are going to heaven. Oh, that's a problem, right? And, we, and I talk to people, you know, and ask them these things. And, and I begin to show them what the Bible says. And I say, well, are you, is this a problem for you? That now you realize you're not good enough to get into heaven? Yeah, that's a problem for me. I got good news. God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. That if you would believe on him, you would not have to perish in hell, but have everlasting life. Again, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, eternal punishment. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look, bringing this to a close, today, do you realize that we as the church of Jesus Christ have been called to be the spiritual physicians of the Great Commission. As Jesus said to us as his people, go to all the people of the world and preach the good news of salvation to everyone. We are to faithfully tell people that they have a terminal disease that if left untreated will kill them forever. And the only cure, the only cure, is the blood of Jesus Christ which is applied to their life by faith. The problem is, when you talk to people today, most people don't feel sick. And I'm speaking now spiritually. They don't feel sick. They don't feel like there's a problem. Just like you can have this in physical disease, like with me, no idea I had heart disease. None at all. Out there doing my own thing, uh, you know, enjoying stuff, exercising. In fact, I had my heart attack right after I worked out at the gym. Had no idea what was going on in my body. And God graciously allowed the heart attack to be mild that caused me to understand there was a problem. And I got treatment, and uh, God blessed, and everything went well. But, you know, when you talk to people about the fact that they're sinners and that the wrath of God is abiding on them, coming judgment is looming, but you know what? If they give their heart to Christ... God will forgive them. They will be cured of this disease. They will be God's kids forever. A lot of people, when they, when they hear that, um, they, they, they look at you and go, you're crazy. Okay? There's no problem. If they believe in God, they'll tell you, well, look at my life. I mean, look at it. I mean, I'm healthy. My family's healthy. I'm prospering in my business or in my company. I've got a nice house. I've got a, a couple of nice cars. We go on nice vacations. Hey, look, what are you talking about? That God, his wrath is, a, is upon me. I'm being blessed by God. There's no problem. That's why a person who has been beat up by their sin is a lot more open to this than a person who is right now just enjoying their life. But make no mistake about it, eventually a crisis will hit. And we don't wish it upon you, but God loves you so much that he will bring a crisis into your life. And sometimes they're very severe. Maybe he will take your health from you. Maybe he will take your business from you. 
Maybe your bank account will be emptied. Why would God do that to me? Because God loves you so much. If he's got to put you through some earthly discomfort now to give you an eternal home with him forever, he'll do that. God will always sacrifice our temporal comfort for our eternal good. Always. It is not a mean act of vengeance by God to take from you what you're leaning on, which is keeping you from him. It's the mercy of God that God would, you know, allow you to be afflicted here on the earth because that's many times the only time people will look up. As God said in Isaiah 19, I think it was, uh, to Egypt, he says, sometimes I have to hurt before I can heal. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, God uh, whispers in our pleasures, but shouts in our pain. And the more dull of hearing we are, the more God will shout in our pain. Not because he's a mean God, but because he loves us so much he does not want us to go to hell. And a lot of people just don't see this. They're sick with a, with a terminal disease, eternally terminal. Yet as Proverbs 26 says, most people will proclaim each their own goodness. Oh, I'm a good person. Well, you need to ask, are you a perfect person? Well, of course not. Who is? Well, Jesus, but besides him, nobody. And see, God requires perfection to get into heaven. That's impossible. Who can be saved then? You know, that's exactly what the disciples said to Jesus. But he said the very thing to them, and, and uh, that God requires perfection to get into heaven. And they said, well, then, Lord, who could possibly be saved? And he said, well, with men, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Look, Jesus Christ can only save sinners. You have to know that you have violated God's law. Maybe not as bad as somebody else. Maybe not as bad as me. I'm not the standard. Jesus is the standard. And we have been called to tell people the bad news, that they're sinners and judgment is coming. If they accept that, now you have the good news to share with them. But God so loved you that he gave his son that you would not have to go to hell, but might have eternal life with him forever. That's the message, right? That's the Great Commission. The problem today, guys, it seems like a lot of Christians just really don't care about the lost anymore. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that they would tell you that, but their actions kind of show that. Remember what Jesus said here in verse 13, beginning part? He said to the Pharisees, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That was a quote out of Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 indicting the scribes and Pharisees for basically becoming so wrapped up in their religion that they thought that that was all there was. They had no compassion for people. Just hanging out with their buddies, you know, their other Pharisee buddies, and talking about how great they all were and putting down everybody else who wasn't a Pharisee. And Jesus is saying, you know what? God is not interested in your religious practices as much as he is in a heart of compassion and mercy towards others one author said the pharisees always brought the proper sacrifices but they were totally lacking in compassion towards sinners when mercy is lacking then religious formalities are meaningless end quote look i'm wondering if jesus christ were here today visiting various churches i'm wondering if he would say to us you know what you remind me of the pharisees so many years ago here i was out among the sinners trying to reach them. And the Pharisees, who claimed to represent God, were just huddled in their little groups, 
enjoying their little deal with each other and looking down on everybody who wasn't in their group. How many Christians do this today? We get so comfortable in our own little group. And look, I'm not putting that down. I mean, it's good to get together. I, I enjoy when the saints get together. The problem is... We enjoy it so much, we don't want to go out into the, to the world and share the good news with the lost anymore. In fact, some Christians, if they were honest about it, they would say, look, unbelievers, they, they, I don't know, they scare me, they upset me, they repulse me, whatever you want to say. There's a lot of Christians who just don't want to mingle with unbelievers. And you know what? In the modern church today, we have churches with so many amenities. You don't have to go out into the world anymore. You can stay right in the church and get everything you need. But Jesus said, go into all the world. You've got the cure for the world's disease. They don't know they have a disease. You've got to tell them the bad news first. But then, when they receive that, then give them the good news. I'm the great physician, but I've now empowered you to be the physicians of the new covenant and go out there. And don't hang out with just the well. All the righteous, go out there and hang out with the sick. Because they're the ones that need the message. May God give us the grace to do that. Father, we thank you so much for your word. It's penetrating. It pierces. And we need to be shaken, Lord. I thank you for the body of Christ. I thank you, Lord, that this is a refuge where we can come every week to uh, get our batteries recharged, so to speak, to, to be with other believers and to... Uh, pray for each other. That, that's necessary. That's needed. That's good. But Lord, if we only hang out with the righteous, then we're like doctors only hanging out with the physically well. And we have been called, Lord, to go into the world and to share the cure with all those who are sick with sin. Give us a heart for the lost, Lord. Give us a heart to reach people with the good news of the gospel, which means we have to become less selfish, less about what we want, and more about what they need. Thank you, Lord, for sending people to us who shared the gospel when we were lost. Give us grace, Lord, to have a heart to go out and share it with those who are lost today. We ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.